Good evening, everyone. Lovely to be here with you. And uh, tonight is the first talk in a series on Samatha and Vipassana in Harmony. Okay, so we'll start with a sitting. And um, if I'm not teaching a particular practice, usually the sitting is just whatever feels appropriate for you. But since tonight is the first night of this series on Samatha and Vipassana and Harmony, and I'm going to be focusing on Samatha tonight, I'll give a short um, uh, guided meditation instructions for the beginning of the sit tonight. And we'll sit for about 30 minutes. So go ahead and, and make yourself comfortable in whatever meditation posture works for you at this time. Really the most important thing in a posture is to be as upright as possible. We don't have to be military straight, but to, to feel a sense of alertness in the posture and uprightness, and also to be relaxed so that you can really settle into the meditation. And with the Samatha practice, maybe more so than some, it's important to be comfortable. So, being in, a, being in a chair is fine. And now with the Samatha practice, Samatha means serenity and concentration. And for this type of Samatha, which is mindfulness of breathing, Anapanasati, the breath is our object. And so to know the breath, for this particular practice, we know it between the upper lip and the nostril, that anywhere in that area, it could be a point, it could be a region. Um, the instruction is to know the breath as it crosses the Anapana spot or region. However you know it is fine, you know it by movement, sensation, the energy of the breath, but we wanna be in direct contact with our experience of the breath. So taking some nice, gentle breaths. The breath should be natural. You don't need to do anything to it. So let it be however it is. Knowing the breath. And we can also notice on the pause is a common place to lose lose track of our object within its breath. And you can also notice the serenity there if you find that there's a pause and it's easy to slip off. Just be present with the serenity. You're not leaving the breath. You're just noticing how peaceful it is to not have to do anything other than know your breath at this time. And we can know it in a general way. We don't have to investigate or know everything about it. Knowing it in a general way is fine for Samatha. And if you find that your mind has wandered, don't be too hard on yourself. Just be glad that you noticed and be kind and, and return to the breath without self-criticism or judgment of kindness and gentleness towards yourself. And we'll practice in this way silently until we move out. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and get started. This series on Samatha and Vipassana and Harmony is something I've been, been contemplating doing for a while. And um, I am going to be doing a day long on this in, we're thinking, May. So um, uh, just wanted to add that, that announcement. Um, but it really, um, to me, it's a conversation that really hasn't been out there very much about the two practices and how they work together, the Buddha 
clearly talked about them as being, being um, uh, companion practices. Um, there's been a lot of confusion, I think, and even conflict over the years about the practices and how they fit together and uh, do I have to choose one or the other. Um, and there's been conflict even over the practices within the different lineages of especially Theravadan Buddhism, but even in Tibetan Buddhism, there's been, uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot of different views about this. And um, the Buddha, if you looked at what, if you look at what he said, he talked about in his day, there were uh, people who did Samatha, known as Samatha yogis, people who mainly did Samatha. There were Vipassana yogis, and there were those who did Samatha and Vipassana. And that is, that is what the Buddha said was the best option, was to do both. So he's not ambiguous about it. Um, in different lineages, how they work together is different. So in Burmese Theravadan Buddhism, and I'm really mainly talking about Theravadan Buddhism here, not, not Tibetan. So in Burmese Theravadan Buddhism, they're really seen as separate stages of the path. They're taught even within the different lineages in Burma, um, they are still seen as you know, you do one and you do the other. They aren't really seen as, as mixing a lot. And that is one way to understand them. I'll talk more about this on the third month after we've had a chance to, to um, talk some about each practice individually. But in Burma, they're mainly seen as separate. In the Thai forest tradition, which is another, you know, the other kind of main lineage of Theravada Buddhism, they're seen more as like two feet up the mountain, you know, they're seen more fluidly, not quite as, as cut and dried. And um, Ajahn Chah, who was one of the really well-known, uh, you know, monastics, people in our era of Theravada Buddhism in the Thai forest tradition, he didn't talk a lot about it, but, um, it's said that he could go into jhana, which is part of the samatha path, um, at one breath. And because monastics can't talk about their attainments, he didn't, you know, really get into this. But he was clearly practicing both of them together. And one of the um, things that inspired me to actually talk about this is an article by a monk in the Ajahn Chah lineage, who I had the, the good fortune to meet a number of years ago when I first started teaching. His name is Ajahn Chandigo, and he's an American monk who has been living overseas for decades. He's been practicing in the Ajahn Chah lineage for more than 30 years and is the head of a monastery in New Zealand. And he's written this article called um, A Honed and Heavy Axe, Samatha and Vipassana in Harmony. And I did put in the chat box, you can, if you're interested, go to my website and scroll down that page and get it and download the PDF or you can put it into the internet if you are interested. It's a provocative article. You might say it's a little controversial, but he really outlines in the Ajahn Chah lineage how um, he clears up some of the misconceptions mainly about Samatha and talks about this idea of two feet up the mountain and how the practices can work together. And I, when I met him and he had a chance to really, you know, ask him questions, even though I'm from a Bernie, you know, when I was authorized to teach, I was authorized by, by um, Venerable Pa Aksayadaw of Burma, who's very well-respected practitioner, scholar, uh, and, you know, amazing yogi. So that's where, when I teach the Samatha and what I'll be sharing with you tonight is from, from that lineage. The way I actually practice it and when I'm teaching people on retreat, it's really more like the Thai forest tradition where I see there being uh, more possibility of fluidity there. 
So I think practicing them both ways is fine. Um, in daily practice, I think it's it's good to, to undertake periods of each one. So not to just sort of go back and forth, uh, but I'll talk about all of this more on the third, on the third um, evening. But just to sort of orient you within the tradition. So the Honed and Heavy X article, it's uh, it's controversial. So you know, take it for however you want. But it it is a great pointer, I think, to this idea of the two practices together. So what does it mean when he says a honed and heavy X? Well, heavy is, in his view, the weight and the power and the heft of the Samatha practice that really, you know, brings the mind stream together and gives us a, a powerful attention that can stay on the on an object and that's, that's been strengthen to be able to stay with the object of meditation for longer periods with more stability and to really sink into the practice, whatever practice we're doing. Um, Samatha really cultivates that, that heavy power of the axe. And then the honed part is Vipassana that lets us investigate things with precision and really, um, really, uh, begin clarity about our experience and, and go deeper into the experience. That's what the, the hone, meaning the really sharp, the really, um, the ax that can cut through. And so this is really where he, he's making the analogy that an ax that is both honed and heavy is going to be a lot more effective than an ax that is just honed, but is very lightweight can't cut a big tree down with that. You might get some twigs down, but not, not a lot of uh, lot, a lot of capacity. And an axe that's just heavy without being honed, you know, you're gonna clobber things, but there isn't gonna be that precision to really go in with a fine um, precision understanding and perception. So, so that just gives you a little bit of a feel for um, kind of, you know, the potential of really using the two practices together in a way that they, they elevate each other. They aren't just two completely separate things that have no relationship, but they can really support each other in a lot of different ways. And ultimately, the article really talks about how they can lead to liberation, how the two, the two feet up the mountain give us more uh, more capacity to uh, to really be free of the places that we we suffer and of our um, our personality identifications to be able to you know live life in a way that we have more tools. So in my teaching, um, I'll orient this to the four practices that are being studied in neuroscience, which is really the basis of my most of my teaching now and those four categories are heart, heart based practices like the Brahma Viharas, Metta, and then focused attention practices, which would be like Samatha, open monitoring practices where it's more of a wide awareness of what, you know, being aware of whatever's predominant, that would be Vipassana. And then um, self-transcending practices, which in Theravadan Buddhism, the closest we have to that is, is Chita Nupasana. Um, and I really like the, the Dzogchen Rigpa practice as a, um, a very uh, you know, effective self-transcending practice that includes all of the other three categories. So those are the four categories. So really Samatha and Vipassana are in that middle zone of the focused attention where we're really bringing the mind stream together and the open monitoring where we're including all of our experience in Vipassana. So then the Samatha practice um, is a practice that has been around, it predates the Buddha and um, it was when he left the palace and went out on his own search, on his own spiritual journey. He did what any of us would have done and, and looked around for the best teachers he could find. And he studied with two of them and they taught him the Samatha practice. So the Buddha 
um, didn't invent it, but you know, we think he made some enhancements to it. But this, this practice has been around for, some people think 5,000 years. And you know, why would something last 5,000 years in human history? There aren't a lot of things that we're doing right now that were passed down as, as practices or understandings. And it's because it works. If it didn't work, it wouldn't have lasted 5,000 years. So um, he, you know, he practiced this in his own search. He talked about it constantly. Um, some of the scholars and historians of Buddhism, of which I'm not, I'm more of a practitioner, but they say that 60 to 80% of the time when people asked him to practice, he pointed them to Samatha and then Vipassana, sometimes one or the other, but you know, Samatha was, was part of what he told people to practice 60 to 80% of the time. And he practiced this not only at the beginning of when he was learning, um, but he practiced it all through his life. And at the moment of his death, he could have done any practice and he knew he was going to die. He had predicted it. He was on his deathbed and he was doing the Samatha practice. It's right there in the suttas. So we can't know why he did that, but it's, you know, it's pretty compelling that he did that. So, um, so the three stages of the Samatha include, or wait, let me go back. The, the four reasons to do the practice, why would we do Samatha? And I'll talk about the same things with Vipassana. Serenity, concentration, Purification of mind and thinning of the me are, are the four ways that I talk about it. So a lot of times people think of concentration practices as samadhi practices, and that's a different word. Samadhi means concentration, so it is related to this. But samatha means both serenity and concentration. So a lot of times people forget that it's, it is a serenity practice and they get into a lot of you know, striving and trying and, and things that really are the opposite of serenity. So it's important to remember that when we're doing this, it is a serenity practice and you know, just being with the breath and settling into it um, has a sense of serenity to it that we don't have to do anything else other than just be here with our breath. And, uh, you know, in the world we're in today, who doesn't need more serenity? So it's a really great benefit of the practice. Concentration, part of what's happening by focusing on one object of awareness to the exclusion of everything else, we're bringing the mind stream together. And in the, gosh, in the neuroscience research, there's so much, there's just increasing mountains of evidence showing that our, the introduction of tech devices everywhere, you know, not only our cell phones and computers, but, you know, you're at the gas station, you can't even pump gas anymore without having ads blaring on a small TV over the gas pump. I don't know if any of you have seen that. I mean, I used to just be able to stand there in peace and pump my gas. And now I have to actually like try not to look at the bad news of disasters that are happening while I'm there. So, you know, all of these phenomena are creating a consciousness where we're constantly being distracted by things. It, you know, 50 years ago, this wasn't happening. And it's actually affecting our gray matter in addition to our, you know, our neural pathways. So um, it's a practice that really helps us be able to focus on one thing, to be able to direct our awareness and apply it. And that we need that in daily life to be able to, you know, do work and be able to stay with something without getting distracted. Purification of mind and thinning of the me are a little more uh, are deeper aspects. And purification of mind really is about um, purifying the mind stream itself from the hindrances and defilements, from the things that take us off of the object in such a way that we suffer less, that we, the mind stream itself starts becoming freer of those, those grooves in the consciousness, just by coming back to the breath, those grooves that pull us off Every time we get pulled off, we're seeing the grooves in our consciousness. At Samatha, it's really obvious that, you know, what they are, because you're going to be pulled off. I guarantee it 100%. You're not doing it wrong. This is part of what we get to see 
is what those grooves are. And every time we just come back to the breath, we're weakening the compulsiveness of those grooves and we're replacing them. It's really like a software upgrade where we're, we're reprogramming our consciousness. We're both like the program and the programmer at this point. So um, that's part of what purification of mind is. And then the thinning of the me as were those grooves in our consciousness that are really part of what make up the belief in the, in the separate self and the personality patterning, those get thinner and thinner so that our deeper nature potentially can start shining through and we can be in more direct contact with that. So those are the, the four, you know, four sort of practical reasons to do the Samatha practice. And then in Theravadan Buddhism, there are three stages to the path sila, which is really, I think of it as, as living in congruence with what we experience in our practice, really living from that in a way that has like is wholesome living. And then so we have sila, samatha, and vipassana. So, you know, these two together really make up two-thirds of, of the Theravadan Buddhist practice path. Okay, so what then is Samatha? What are we actually doing? Well, one way of looking at it, and this applies to Vipassana as well as any other meditation, but just to highlight how this is in Samatha, when we're meditating, we're either experiencing transformation or transcendence. One of the two is always happening. So that's a way to orient yourself and both are good. So, transformation is when we are in Samatha, we're trying to be with the breath and we find ourselves getting pulled off into thoughts or other things that would take us away from the object. And we're challenging that we're transforming the compulsive compulsiveness of our personality patterning. So that's the transformation part is we're working with this thinning of that. The transcendent part is when we're having some freedom in our practice and we're actually able to stay with the object for longer periods. Maybe there's some silence and some stillness, some blissfulness, other aspects of our deeper nature that often are covered over that we can be in direct contact with and that can get deeper and deeper. And that's the transcendent side of the coin. So these are really two sides of the same coin. So anytime you're meditating, doing any practice, really, this is a way to look at it. One of those two is happening. We all want the transcendence. That's the more enjoyable part where we're having a really good sitting. That's more, it, more pleasant. But the transformation part is just as important. So, um, so that's one way of looking at what's, what are we really doing in the Samatha practice. Particularly in Samatha, we are focusing on one object of awareness to the exclusion of everything else. So this is a difference from Vipassana. Um, so in this case, the breath, but in the Samatha practice, there are many different objects we can use of awareness that the Buddha gave us. And um, we're not pushing away the thoughts or the other things. We don't need to be aversive to them. So that's important. We're not, you know, sitting there disliking these things. We're just, when they come up, when we're, our attention goes off onto them, we just come back. So we're not giving them extra energy because when we don't pay attention to them, they de-energize. So we now know through the neuroscience that neural pathways in the brain and in the body too, that we travel over tens of thousands of times a day and in our lifetime, millions, trillions of times, they're thicker. If we travel over it more and more times, it's gonna be thicker than if we don't travel over it as many times, just like a deer path in the woods, that if the deer going over it all the time, you're gonna see a really clear path in the, in the grass there. But if the deer stop going that way or whatever, it gradually gets covered over. And that's what's happening to our consciousness when we're, whatever thought patterns you're seeing in your meditation, those are really thick synapses because it, you're falling into it without even wanting to. 
that's how often your attention is traveling over that deer trail. So it's thick. So every time we come back to the breath, we're making that deer trail a little bit thinner. The synapses actually get smaller and they get replaced with just being with the breath, which is neutral or positive. So instead of, you know, ruminating over and over and over about their conversation that didn't go well, you know, we can turn away from that. When something like that happens, instead of just going over it and torturing ourselves, we can come back to the breath. So this is really what we're doing. We don't have to push those thoughts away. We just reprogram re those synaptic pathways by coming back to the breath. Um, and it is a present moment practice. So that's really important to remember that we're like Vipassana, like all, in my opinion, valid meditations, we are in the present moment. So in Samatha, because of some of the things that can unfold, people often find themselves trying to get somewhere else. If you're getting somewhere else, you're not with the breath. If you're trying to be somewhere other than just right here with the breath right now, then Basically, you're not in the present moment. Usually there's some kind of attachment or suffering involved in that. So it's important to remember it is a present moment practice. And what we're doing as we just come back over and over, we're building that muscle of concentration. So we, we already have concentration as a faculty. You don't need to go out and get it. You already have it. So just like a muscle in your arm, you already have it. It's just how developed is it? How much have you used it so that it's stronger? And just like if you went to the gym and you tried, say, starting with a, you know, a, a 10 pound weight, that might feel really heavy to start doing, you know, bicep curls. So you might start with a five pound weight. But then if you did that every day for a month, that five pound weight would start feeling lighter. So you could go up to more weight. That's just what's happening when we're doing Samatha. When you first start doing it, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's always hard in a way. But what happens is you, your capacity develops. You build that muscle of concentration. So in the Anapanasati then, which is the breathe, mindfulness of breathing, that's the Pali name, um, the breath is the object. And it's in this region, as I was saying in the instructions, between the upper lip and the nostril. So when we're doing breath meditation in Vipassana, it's fine to use the belly or the chest or wherever it's easiest to notice. So, you know, what I'm saying here about the breath doesn't apply to Vipassana. This is another difference. But in the Samato, we want to focus here for many reasons, which I won't get into all of them tonight. But um, it's a smaller area, it's harder. And that's okay that it's harder because it's gonna bring the mind stream together faster. And if you stay with it, I've been teaching this a long time now, over time, your concentration comes up to the point where you can notice the breath there. Um, we don't follow the breath into the body. We don't follow it out. We're really just staying right here. And the most common question I get and, and Pawak, my teacher of this said the same thing. I can't feel my breath. So, you know, sometimes we'll be able to notice more on the inhale than the exhale or vice versa, or people will get lost at the pause in between the, the out breath and the next in breath. So we have, when that's happening, we just, we wait until we can notice the breath there because you are breathing. I guarantee there's something happening there. And uh, if we, if the concentration comes up, you can know the breath in that area. And this is where noticing the serenity, if that's happening, is a way to stay with the breath. We're not leaving the breath. We're just noticing the serenity until the breath becomes noticeable. Let's see, what else do I want to say about it? Um, working with hindrances. This is one of the differences with Vipassana also is how to work with hindrances. So I'll just go through them quickly. Um, the hindrances are um, sense desire, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, uh, 
restlessness and remorse and doubt. So desire being when we were distracted because there's something we want that we're thinking about or feeling. Ill will or aversion includes anger, hatred, and fear. So these are things, you know, we're trying to get something away that we don't want to be in touch with. Sloth and torpor is like a sleepiness. Now, and this gets in, when these get into the defilements, which are really more core personality patterns, we have these first three, which in, in the defilements are known as um, the old, the old names for them were greed, hatred, and delusion, but I, I prefer desire, aversion, and, um, and delusion, or, or ignorance often was delusion, but basically it's wanting something, wanting to get rid of something, or, or falling asleep on ourselves. So sleepiness can be actual physical sleepiness, but it's also a defense mechanism, so we don't have to be with things that we'd rather not be with. So that's another way of orienting to that. Uh, restlessness or, remor or remorse can be restlessness in the body and the mind, ruminating about things that we wish we had done or that we did and we weren't very skillful. And then doubt. And doubt can be in ourselves, in the teacher, or in the teachings. And doubt, I think doubt is the one that people have the hardest time seeing because all the time people are like, oh, I, I'm just a bad meditator. I'm, you know, I can't do it. Other people can do it, but I can't. And they don't see that that's actually doubt. It's actually a hindrance. So naming these things really makes a huge difference. When we can name these as hindrances, we get a little space from them. And it really can help your practice because there's a part of you then that isn't in that, that isn't identified. If you can name it, then you can see that um, there's a part of you that isn't caught up in the pattern. And that's a little bit of freedom right there. So in, in the Samatha, really what we're doing with the hindrances and defilements is when they arise, when we find that we're, we're off of the breath, we just come back. We don't need to name it. We don't need to use noting, which I'll get into when we get into Vipassana. Most of you probably already know that, what that is, but we don't need to, to name what it is. We just come back. We don't explore it. We don't investigate it. We come back to the breath as a way of deconditioning um, the compulsiveness of that groove in our consciousness. Now, there are times when one of those patterns is so in our face that we literally can't be with the breath. It's just, you know, we, we can't find the breath or we're, um, we um, are just, you know, we just can't stop thinking about that thing. Maybe we're ruminating about something or, or we're anxious about something that's coming up that we just can't stop thinking about. So if you get to that point in the Samatha or sleepiness, I was working with somebody today, just today in a session on sleepiness, that was the time to, to bring in Vipassana. So what we do then, if we're doing Samatha and we're just plagued by a pattern that just won't go away when we try to come back to the breath, then we leave the breath and we turn our attention to that hindrance or defilement, and we, we investigate it. So like sleepiness, even if you're falling asleep doing Samatha and you're just falling asleep, falling, you know, it's just incessant. That would be the time to actually get curious about the sleepiness. Use the investigation in Vipassana. What does it feel like? Is it heavy? Is it dreamy? Um, is it pleasant? Do I like falling asleep? Is it kind of nice not to have to be present? Um, is it tingling? Is it, um, I just feel leaden. You know, these are all things that we can be in touch with about sleepiness in Vipassana. So this is where we're trying to, to and when we're doing Samatha, we only use the investigation of Vipassana just enough to get some freedom from it. Maybe have some insight into what's going on 
into that pattern, and then we come back to the breath. So in Vipassana, we would stay with that much, you know, for a longer period. So this is how we use a little bit of Vipassana to help with the Samatha. And the same thing when I get to Vipassana, I'll talk about how to use the Samatha as a support when we're really in a big hindrance, um, not in Vipassana. Um, sometimes people will think with Samatha that they can, there's, there's a phrase I, I like to use with um, hindrances that I call the surf zone. So I used to be a scuba diver and there's, when you're scuba diving you do, and you do what's called a beach dive, you get on all your equipment and you go down to the beach and it's really, you know, heavy and hard to walk around and you, you walk backwards into the ocean with your fins and your mask on and the waves start hitting you. And at some point the waves come so strong that you actually may get knocked over um, from the waves. and you know, you have to find your mask and your fins and put them back on and try and go back to the surf. In Samata, we're really trying to get through the surf zone as fast as possible out into the open waters where there's still waves coming up and down, but they're not breaking. And um, we do that with the concentration. So, uh, but and, and it's a good way of thinking about it that we're going to encounter a surf zone. Even an experienced meditator will encounter a surf zone. They're better at getting through the surf zone. So that's really what starts changing over time is the ability to get through the surf zone gets better. Sometimes people think they can parachute over the surf zone. So like in Samatha, you're gonna know what your hindrances and defilements are. It's a practice that will show you that quickly faster than Vipassana. And this is, I think, part of why the Buddha liked it is you're going to see your patterns. You're going to see the hot coal that is always there operating under the surface. Whatever you see when you're doing, when you're doing any meditation, but especially in Samatha, you're going to see it quickly. Um, those are running all the time in your life. And, and we just don't know it because we're lost in thought. So it's great that you can see the hot coal and feel it and feel how painful it is because like the Buddha said, sometimes we have to feel it to be able to let go. So um, we can't parachute over. There's no way like you think, well, I'm really good at Vipassana. I'm gonna do that a while and then switch over real fast to Samatha. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. If it did, I would, I would encourage you to do it. You know, but we really going through the surf zone is actually part of the process because that is what's deconditioning our the grooves in the consciousness. It's only by challenging those that we actually get freedom from them. So the surf zone is part of it, and it actually is a helpful thing to to build the muscle of concentration. Um, one of my teachers, Guy Armstrong, talked about hindrances and, and the difference between Samatha and Vipassana in how the hindrances feel. And I've kind of been alluding to this, but he talked about in Samatha, it feels like you're going down a hill on ice, ice skates. I don't know why you would want to do that, but it's a good, a good a metaphor. And you hit a big boulder, you know, and it's jarring like that. You really feel it, you know. And in Vipassana, the hindrances feel more like you're walking down a country lane and there's a boulder there, you know, you're still going to encounter it, but there are ways where it's not, you know, it's not as obvious because the object can change in Vipassana. So, you know, it's something just to know that in Samatha, we need to find, we need to get good at working with our patterning. And really the, the suffering of, of the, or the pain of those patterns is part of our own deeper nature, really calling us back and showing us what's in the way, what's in the way in our consciousness. So it's like a tough love of our, of our deeper nature that we are seeing when we're doing the practice. It's showing us this is what's standing in the way between your experience now and your experience of your deeper nature being more available. You're getting to see that. So that's a little bit about the Samatha practice. So um, I'll open it up now to any questions or comments. I'll ask a question. Yeah, Stephen. 
Hi. Hi. Nice Thank to you. see you. You too. Thank you. So um, <clears throat> I wonder if you could speak a little bit. Well, but my experience is sometimes I, what is it? I guess I under effort and I find that I'm just like in Samatha and then I just like sort of float away. And then I find that I effort to come. I don't know. I'm just, how do you find that balance in, you know, when, um, when you come off of the breath? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if what you're describing is sinking mind, which I didn't talk about. So let me just say a few words about sinking mind so that everybody, you know, kind of gets what I'm pointing to sinking mind is it's a Buddhist term, but most people haven't heard of it. And it's really happens a lot in Samatha in particular, it doesn't happen as, as much in Vipassana. Mm -hmm. It's where our concentration, part of what we're doing is balancing our concentration and our energy in any practice. This is part of the, the five spiritual faculties which apply to Vipassana also. Um, but in Samatha, what can happen is the concentration gets stronger than our energy level. So we're not like lost in a lot of thought, but there's like a dreamy kind of floaty quality to it. Is that sort of what you're yeah. describing? Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there is a name in, in Buddhism for that, which is called sinking mind. The opposite of that is rising mind, which we all know where we're just thinking, you know, where the energy is stronger than the concentration. So that's what we're normally encountering. But in Samatha, our concentration can deepen to where the opposite is true. And then we're in this kind of dreamy state. So the good news is it's a sign of concentration. So that's the good news for your practice. The thing is, it's not very crisp. It's like, you know, you're not lost in thought and it can be quite pleasant. And I've even, you know, in the old days when I would hear like people giving meditation instructions on the radio and things like that, sometimes they were trying to get you into sinking mind. Like that was, that was the destination they were trying to get you to, you know, because there is some thought and it is kind of a relief. Um, but the downside is it's not really crisp. We're not really that present. We're not lost in thought, but we're not really that present. So um, the advice for sinking mind then is to raise the energy level so that we're trying to have them be like when, when a sitting's really good in any practice, these two are, two are balanced. So um, some of the things we can do is to, um, to open the open our eyes and just take in a little bit of light. You know, you don't have to be looking all over, but just, you know, let some light in uh, to, uh, you know, have your posture be more alert. If, if we're doing this kind of thing, it's basically like telling our body to go to sleep. So, the, you know, just a little more alertness in the posture. And then the last is standing up. Mm. I've never known anyone to fall asleep or, or really, I mean, I, sinking mind, you might still be able to have that standing up, but it will increase the alertness because just keeping your balance brings a little bit more alertness into things. But ultimately with sinking mind, um, like on a retreat, you know, if you stay with the sinking mind long enough, the, the energy will catch up. In a daily practice, you know, we don't always have as much time to let that happen. So taking a little bit more active measures is usually better. That makes sense. But it's a good sign of your concentration. No, very. It makes a lot of sense. I think what's helpful what you said is because what I have been doing is I notice it, then I sort of effort to get back to, you know. Right. And yeah, that, that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. The efforting you know, usually efforting. I mean, we do need to have a certain amount of effort in the practice just to stay with our object. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, that, that is part of it. But if, uh, with sinking mind, um, if you thought about it in terms of energy, I think that would be more useful than effort. Does okay. you, yeah. can you feel a little bit of a subtle difference there? Yeah, it's softer. It seems kinder. Right, right. Because yeah. because what happens with like 
a lot of efforting, it can get really tight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not that's not so helpful. The tightness isn't so helpful. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Stephen. Karen. Okay. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, So I'm really excited to hear when, when you said transcendent and you said one example of that could be chitta nupasana. Uh, the self-transcending category of practice, yep. Mm-hmm. And um, I had studied Chita Nupasana with Sayato Utejaniya in Burma. Uh-huh. Yeah. The way I learned it, and this may be like just my perception of, at the time, was that it was mainly watching the thoughts in the mind, observing and knowing the thoughts. Okay. So it didn't seem self-transcendent and seemed very unless i'm thinking of that wrong it seemed like really practical just Uh watching the thoughts and knowing what the thoughts were all the time and and i still do that a lot of times but it doesn't feel self-transcendent it feels very like present in the moment like oh why is the mind Mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well I and and just to say this isn't a practice that I've done I haven't studied with him or the people that are teaching it um to me so Chen's a lot more clear-cut in terms of get, doing a self-transcending practice so that's mainly what I've done in terms of you know that category but from what I understand with the Chichanupasana there's there are stages of it, just like with Dzogchen, there are stages where we watch the thoughts, but then ultimately we can know the awareness that knows the thoughts. So it's really when there's this shift from the objects of awareness being our main focus to the awareness itself being the focus. So you're still aware of the thoughts arising. So that isn't really gone, but the main, if you want to say object, you know, when we get into non-duality, then that the word object doesn't really work. When we're really in the self-transcending object doesn't work because then we're still in dualism, you know, but I'll just use that word. So the object becomes the awareness itself. So we're knowing the thoughts that's more like Vipassana in Theravada Buddhism. And, um, and then we can actually kind of go behind that, like a layer deeper where we're actually knowing the awareness itself. Is that? Yes, I actually, it's funny that you're saying that because I can remember one moment where it was like, it was like, what, what is observing this or what is i can exactly remember that how was that what what was it like for you when that happened i would say that was self-transcending because i can still remember it i could still remember like where i'm sitting i can remember the meditation hall and that was like 10 years ago right right that was a taste a taste of that uh, of being outside of the me which is basically another way of saying self-transcending. Yeah, because the awareness, you are knowing the awareness that's usually at a level that we aren't conscious of. It's just operating. Yeah, yeah. And, And it sounds like it was really, it was significant to you, even though it was, you know, a momentary taste, it was memorable. It, it affected you. Yes. Right, right. So that's the, all of the, well, not, I won't say all, the Buddhist practices that lead to the self-transcending category usually have stages. There are other traditions like, well, in Zen, for example, they just go straight for the the non-duality or in the, the, the modern Advaita, like Adyashanti and people like that, they go straight for the self-transcending. But in Buddhism, for the most part, we kind of work up to it. And that's how the Chitta Nupasana is. So it sounds like, sounds good. 
Thank yeah. you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Okay, so um, next month, which will be next year, actually, uh, I'll be talking about Vipassana and sharing a little bit about my um, my my sense. I and and most people don't realize because I you know, co-written a book on Samatha that I actually have practiced Vipassana longer than Samatha. I practiced it, learned to meditate at the age of 13 and practiced it for uh, 20 years before I even really knew about Samatha. So um, uh, yeah, I love, I love Vipassana. So it's a wonderful, essential practice to, um, to work with. And um, so I'll talk about some of the different, uh, the different lineages. I got into that a little bit, Burmese, Thai, how they see Vipassana, how, how they see it similarly and differently from each other. And, um, and some other aspects of the practice, you know, a, sh a short overview. I know most of you probably practice Vipassana, but this may be a, a little bit different way that of, thinking about it, we'll do, um, I'll do a short guided Vipassana meditation at the beginning and then get into some of these differences that I got into today. And then in the third session in February, I'll really talk about how we can work with the two practices together um, in a way that is harmonious and really uh, each of them can help the other practice get stronger which is a really, and give us some variety. And, and if, you know, if you are somebody who's practicing both or is interested in practicing both to really see how over the course, the trajectory of your a whole lifetime of practice, how can these work together in a way that makes sense? Okay, well, we'll stop there and happy holidays to all of you. Wishing you a, a, a merry holiday season and, uh, and end of the year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.